This is Jason Fossig, and I'm sitting here with Mac Baconan, who emigrated to America from Ethiopia, founded Epsi Inc., which owns a chain of Domino's restaurants. He's always supported KNON's Ethiopian show through his work with the Mutual Assistance Association for the Ethiopian Community, and personally, and we're excited to have him here for this podcast, where we'll share his story with you. Mac, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Jason. I do appreciate uh, KNON for giving me this opportunity to talk to you today. Jason, I appreciate it. We're definitely happy to have you here. We'll go through your, your life story. You were born in the Gondor province of Ethiopia. What was life like growing up? Yes, growing up here right now, um, being the first generation of uh, young people uh, growing in Gondor, not only Gondor, but also in the yeah, towns that are uh, popping up all over the country, uh, being the first uh, generation in uh, going to a modern school, getting education, was probably the most exciting thing that I can recall, I can remember. I said the first generation because our parents never went to school, never went to school, never got high school education, even elementary school for that matter. So for me, growing up, I think the most exciting thing is that I can't wait to get up Monday morning to go to school. So growing up, having friends playing sports during the weekend and then after school, Playing soccer uh, with friends is really the most exciting thing. You know, um, visiting uh, tea rooms in, in the towns and uh, listening to uh, Ethiopian modern music. music. And, and of course, uh, in the tea rooms, actually, not only Ethiopian music was uh, played, but also the modern music from the States and from all over the world was played. And I remember growing up listening to, uh, you know, the, the song of uh, James Brown and the Beatles. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, many, many other great singers, uh, we, we played those songs, we danced to those songs, and uh, growing up was really exciting. I mean, there is something, something really hopeful uh, we were also uh, looking for, going to school, finishing school, and then going to college, and then becoming teachers and lawyers and doctors and, and stuff like that. So there is a lot of excitement about growing up in Ethiopia. And, you know, that, that led us to, you know, uh, something else, in which uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about what happened next. But growing up, this is a really exciting phenomenon, because like I said, we were the first generation to have modern education. Going to school was the most exciting thing that I recall. You mentioned uh, that we'll probably move on to this next topic. You had a major part in the struggle against a communist regime's takeover in Ethiopia. Can you tell us about that struggle and at what age did you become involved? Uh, yes, I'm not sure if I want to call it a major major role in it, but I was definitely a, a strong student growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, all started all started in the middle school uh, when I was eighth grade and then ninth grade as a freshman high school student. You know, we got involved in asking basic questions and on uh, democracy issues and. Uh, you know, the country was ruled for many, many years by the monarchy. At the time, in, in, in the 1960s, 1970s, uh, the country was uh, ruled by the Emperor, Emperor Haizulazi. So knowing that the monarchy, even though they, they did what they could, stage of level of development, but somehow, you know, especially students from college, from the university, uh, the Haizulazi University in Addis Ababa, the capital city, the students are learning a lot about democracy and about um, how a country should be run instead of by the monarchy, it should be run by democratic government, so on and so forth. So we learned that. Mm-hmm. So we started just demanding for democracy, uh, the right to vote, the right to you know, run uh, government by the public and so on and so forth. So we got, we got started uh, 
burning demonstrations and you know throwing stones and stuff like that and just to make a noise that's how it started and then in 1974 the revolution broke out significantly to make an impact for for the country so that's how it started and uh, you know i can i can talk more about uh, the government if you have any questions but if you want me i can continue on no you you're, you have the floor whatever you you would like to express please do you bet you bet jason i think the main thing is that starting in ninth grade tenth grade uh you know we start being part of the demonstration okay mm -hmm. uh, we were just demanding about like you know uh, we want democratic government and uh, the country is so poor that and the farmers need land you know so we we start demanding land to the farmer land to the, we call it land to the tiller we also demanded a better working conditions better pay for the workers better pay for students uh, uh, and so forth so that led to the 1974 Ethiopian revolution, uh, primarily because in 1974, not only students, but also teachers, uh, the military, uh, the peasants, the farmers, many other educated group of people, some even part of uh, some of the government part, and they all joined the movement, the student movement, which led to the uh, Ethiopian revolution. So at that time in 1974, unfortunately, we were not organized through different political parties or different political groups. Only organized group there was was the military. The military took over. This is not unique to Ethiopia. I think the military taking over is common in in many African countries. Mm -hmm. It was common, in, you know, African countries. It's happened many times throughout history. Exactly. Exactly. So, so the military siding uh, the people. Uh, they said. We're gonna throw the government. So the, they overthrew the highest last government, which is the emperor. The emperor was uh, definitely under arrest. So the military government uh, announcing changes, and uh, of course uh, the military at that time got support from us. We got excited. There was okay. a big excitement. Oh, thank you, thank you. So we we went we went up supporting the change. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, as you can expect, our demand was actually a democratic government. Is that right? Yep. Because of that, we said, okay, uh, it's time to go for you know democratic government. And at that time, the military government said, uh, no, 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 wait, wait up <laughs> here. You guys are not ready. The people are not ready. So we're going to stay in government as provisional government. But actually, that was set back for us, and they stayed in power. And and then at that time, in order actually to stop the movement, the continued movement by the students and other part of the, the community, uh, they pretty much uh, put down the noise by taking uh, military action. Uh, okay. So they, they started arresting people. In fact, uh, they announced uh, what they call the Red Terror. The Red Terror is just to terrorize you know, the families, the students, and everybody. In fact, they start killing students and throw their bodies uh, into the streets. That, that was uh, probably one of the black mark for the Ethiopian revolution was that you know, hundreds and thousands of people and young people workers and many people who joined the movement were, were shot to death without any chance you know, to, to defend themselves. There was no any kind of rule at all. It was just a military junta. They pretty much took over the country by storm, arresting people and then putting them in the head and throw them in, on the streets. And parents of those deceased children do not have a chance even to bury their children. Some of them demanded they wanted their children. Uh, bodies to be buried properly. Jason, believe it or not, this is not, uh, not something that uh, I want to repeat, but the government even demanded that the parents have to pay, to pay for the bullets they used to 
the demand is they, they get paid for the bullets if they wanted to bury their children. They, they pay yeah. the military. Yes, the parents to, have to pay the military for the bullets that they use to for shoot. For the bullets that they use to take, wow. That's right, that's right. So to that extent, so uh, parents do not have a chance to bury their children in many, many aspects. So as, as a result, uh, all of the movement uh, was pretty much under the control of the government at that time, we didn't have a choice. That's when it was about uh, the end of, uh, uh, you know, the 70s, um, you know, I think it was 1978, 78, 79, uh, most of us were forced to get out of the cities. Most of us, and I went to the rural area to continue uh, the battle, you know, the, the movement, the struggle mm -hmm. in the rural areas as much as possible. So I stayed in the country, in the countryside for a couple of more years, and after that, um, uh, we were forced, most of us were forced to leave the country. And I was fortunate enough uh, because Gondor, as, as we said, uh, was uh, bordering the Sudan. So we were fortunate enough to flee the country. We stayed there for, for a couple of years. Fortunately, in, in early 1980s, I believe it was the Reagan's, the Reagan's administration announced a program for a refugee resettlement program in the States. Okay. So uh, we were fortunate enough, most of us uh, who were in the Sudan, we were fortunate enough to apply to come to the States through the Refugee Resettlement Program. And that's so, what led you to coming to America? That is correct. So uh, I was able to come to the States uh, with my wife and my first child, Danny McConnell. Uh, we came to the States in 1982. We arrived in North Dakota. So that's where life started, Jason. Did you fly from like straight from Sudan to North Dakota? We flew directly to New York and then from, from New York, uh, we flew to North Dakota. Did they choose North Dakota for you or did you choose North Dakota? How did you come to end up in North Dakota? Was it just uh, we, we didn't have any choice at all. In fact, we didn't really care where we went. Through the resettlement program, through the refugee resettlement program, okay. the program was actually designed where different charity groups, church and non-profit organizations were able to sponsor us. So that's how we got the chance to be sponsored by the Lutheran Social Service uh, located in Fargo, North Dakota. So it was not our choice. It was just we were, we were given that opportunity. When opportunity comes, just take it. Uh, we said, yes, we'll go. Right. It doesn't matter where, whether it's coming to Chicago or Dallas, or Fargo, North Dakota, mm -hmm. uh, we wanted to, uh, to live as soon as possible. So okay. that's how I got to North Dakota. So I, I got to ask, how do you keep your spirits up during the, such a rough transition in your life? Well, you know, when, when you have left uh, everything behind, uh, you, you left your family behind, you, you left everything behind. Remember what I told you, you know, at the beginning of our conversation that, uh, you know, growing up as children, we were so much excited. We were very hopeful that we we're going to become somebody because our parents looked uh, for us uh, in becoming educated and uh, get that education and then become professionals in many various aspects of professional jobs. And we left that behind. So once you left that behind, once you left your families, your belongings, whatever you have uh, behind, uh, moving forward is very, very easy. I mean, just be brave enough to go to the next life. So okay. um, uh, for, for us to travel from Ethiopia to the Sudan, of course, uh, you know, it was very risky because uh, we, we walked for a week during the nighttime, not even walked in the daytime because we were afraid that we might be uh, arrested. 
tortured and uh, sent back to prison or get killed. So when we have left that country and we come to the Sudan, and then from the Sudan, uh, you know, of course, a secured area for us better than uh, what Ethiopia offered at that time. And then moving forward, getting opportunity from the states, uh, have to be brave, brave enough to face the challenge that we will, you know, you know, that we might be facing in in America. But at the same time, we were very hopeful that things would get better for us. So you're you're in North Dakota now. How do you spend your time in North Dakota? What do you do while you're now in America? After I we left everything behind, and you know, the movement, the revolution behind. Mm-hmm. The next phase was starting life all over again. So my subconscious definitely led me to going back to school. I wanted to continue my education through uh, different you know, free promotions and whatever. I was able to complete high school. I almost started going to college, but that did not happen because of uh, Ethiopia at that time. So as soon as I arrived uh, arrived in Fargo, North Dakota, for me, it was a no-brainer that I'm going to go to college. My sponsors, of course, after they uh, uh, settled us at an apartment, and they said, well, we're going to pay the apartment for the next three months. After that, you are on your own. Uh, so um, and tomorrow morning, we're going to come and take you to apply for a job. So I said, okay. And of course, we're, you know, I met with uh, our sponsor, very nice uh, lady uh, representing the Lutheran Social Service. She took me to a couple of grocery stores to apply for a job and uh, picked up a kitchen. I brought it home, talked to my wife, and uh, we said, oh, no, we're not going to do this. So we decided, Jason, that I'm not going to go to work at the grocery store. It's not because I, I was undermining the grocery store job. But basically, because that was not what I have in my subconscious, I wanted to finish college. So uh, my wife and I discussed this, and we decided, of course, since the church, the group is not going to continue paying for for the apartment, we knew we had to make a decision. So is that should be going to work as as a bass tender and a bar, you know, you know, table tender and front, and also becoming a, a waitress for me to go to college. So I applied at the University of North Dakota. Of course, when I applied, you know, I was asked about, okay, give us paperwork. I said, I don't have any paperwork. I just, I came with nothing. I don't have any, I left everything behind. Mm-hmm. So of course, you know, I was required to take a GED and then uh, I believe they call it a college admission, uh, Michigan college admission test for uh, English uh, language. So um, I attended a week or two uh, for the GED program the, the teacher said, uh, wait a minute, uh, you don't need me. Just go ahead and take the exam. So I took the exam, I passed the exam, the GED, I passed it. And then of course, I also took the exam for the English uh, Michigan Admission College test. I passed that. So I qualified for the university. So uh, I started studying electrical engineering. I graduated in, in electrical engineering uh, in 1986. And uh, that's, that's what happened as far as like uh, start, uh, I started life as a college student and I was able to complete my college and then move to Dallas. What brought you to North Texas? Kind of fill the gap for me. So you graduated in 1986. When do you move to North Texas? I think I'm uh, basically I moved to, uh, to Texas for two reasons. Primarily, Dakota was not a place I wanted to live. Uh, there were only about 15 Ethiopians. Uh, uh-huh. You know, uh, Ethiopians were really in da- living in Dallas and Chicago, California, like that. So primarily, um, I, I have also relatives. My my two uncles lived here in Dallas. 
So I have a place to stay there if I, if I brought my family. Secondly, I graduated, I graduated in electrical engineering. So I said, oh, I'm going to apply for PI as an instrument. So okay. those are the two reasons why I came to Dallas. And so I'm, I'm going to guess, correct me if I'm wrong, so you had a couple of relatives already in Dallas. Are, are they how you found out about the growing Ethiopian community in North Texas? Yes, yes, yes. So I came in 1986. Ethiopians were just, uh, you know, gathering and uh, their numbers was uh, growing in the Dallas community starting in the early uh, 1980s. Uh, so very much a group of uh, Ethiopians and they talked about uh, organizing themselves so that they can support each other. And in 1984, they came up with this brilliant idea about organizing an association. Uh, so they started that organization in 1984 and I heard about it and um, I was not very active at that time because number one, the association just started. It was not really big enough uh, for uh, really to make an impact at the time. But 1986, uh, I have already started working for Domino's Pizza. So I stayed here in Dallas for about two and a half years. And after that, I franchised and moved to Harris, Texas, about 100 miles from uh, Dallas. Right. So uh, the, the community is growing, it was growing, started growing, but I, I moved to uh, Harris, Texas. I told my wife, hey, we're going to go and buy a store in Harris, Texas, and we're going to live there a couple of years and then we're going to come back. Was I wrong? <laughs> so <laughs> I stayed in Paris, Texas for 20 years. So at this point, is this where you, you make your own company and uh, you franchise out or is that, does that come later? Well, as, as soon as um, I was eligible to franchise as a, a manager of uh, Domino's Pizza in, in Dallas, learned the business as a, a store manager and learned everything on the job uh, because I never, I never went to management school. So pretty much Domino's uh, franchise organization here in, in Dallas, company name is CSPH. Uh, the owner is Dick Hafner. Um, they, they offer me that opportunity to uh, be a manager. In fact, uh, Jason, believe it or not, I did not plan to work for a pizza place. I just responded a blind ad uh, that said managers needed to earn $31,000. And I You're said, like, sign me up. I said, sign me up. I talked to my wife and she said, hell, go, go for it. So is that, is so, that what made you choose the, uh, the pizza business because you saw... I did not choose the pizza business. I oh. chose the management business. So the, the, you know, the hiring agency, they just pretty much said, oh, you are a college graduate. You want to go to uh, work for a management company? You are on, you are hired. And I said, what do you mean? Where, where am I going to go? So, well, um, um, we are sure that you're going to be hired, but you have to go and apply at Domino's Pizza. I say, what? <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, since I already signed up for that $31,000 a year, Salary. Remember, Jason, $31,000 at that time was not the money uh, I was expecting even to earn as an engineer, as an entry-level engineer. Right. As an entry-level engineer in the 1980s, you were expecting uh, to make $18,000. So that's why I signed up even for Domino's Pizza. So I joined Domino's Pizza, something I have never dreamt that I'll do. Something but here, but I'll here you never, are. <laughs> Jason, uh, that's some decision I have, uh, I'll never regret. So yes, after, after a year as, as a manager within Domino's Pizza, since you know the system, you qualify to become a franchisee. So gotcha. I qualified a year after I became a manager. So that's when I said, I want to franchise. I just want to franchise, that's it. My heart was into owning the business, not just working for somebody else. Uh, because when you work on somebody else, especially with a, a company like Domino's Pizza, then at that time, Jason, 
Domino's was growing like crazy. Uh, they were opening stores uh, once for per week, right? So the company was growing so fast. So for me, it was just like, I saw that opportunity and I said, well, in that case, I want, I want to own my own Domino's. So I franchised, I found a store away from Dallas because at that time I could never franchise in Dallas. In fact, I can, you cannot even franchise in Dallas right now because the market is all under other franchises. So imagine you have to go where the opportunity is. So I went all the way to Paris, Texas. The store okay. I, I, I bought uh, in 1989 was one of the lowest performing stores in the country. You wonder why the, the franchise sold it to me, is that right? Yeah. I was not making money. So yeah. I took over that store and, and of course uh, worked work hard. Uh, with my wife, uh, with my employees, uh, we were able to turn around things in that in that store. Uh, the store, few years later, the store became became one of the top in the country. How did you find success in, in growing your business? Well, I, I, basically, uh, it's a it's a discipline that uh, uh, you have to have in in pursuing what you wanted to do. Uh, remember, uh, in in my subconscious, and I always wanted to be successful, no matter what I do. I'm, wanted to be really successful. Ethics, the work ethics comes really within uh, within the disciplines that I have in me. You know, most of uh, Ethiopians have that discipline, Jason, believe it or not, being the first generation of, uh, you know, having the opportunity to get uh, uh, higher education. And then of course, our parents were well-disciplined where they respected their, their work, uh, they have work ethics, have that discipline. I have that in me. Uh, somehow I just wanted to be my own boss. Uh, so, in fact, you know, the success also comes within the people that you hire for your organization. So, uh, uh, the toughest part was also having the right people in the right place. And then when I have those people in place, the success just happens. You know, that's that I called my company EPSI just because without excelling in product, service, and image, then nothing happens. So, with that discipline, that's how success happens. So, e- EPSI stands for excellence. What's the PSI? In- in product, service, and image. Product, service, and image. Okay. That's correct. That, that's okay. really what I wanted to do was to excel. In fact, uh, Jason, just to give you a couple of examples uh, what uh, APC looks like, this is, this is just what happened. As soon as I took over the store, uh, March 8th of 1989, the first pizza I made went out to the door in less than 20 minutes. It was delivered hot and fresh. It has the right number of pepperoni. I got a phone call from a customer saying that, oh, you guys send me this great looking pepperoni. I, I did not order extra pepperoni. What happened? And I said, no, I didn't send you extra pepperoni. It was the right amount of pepperoni. And they said, well, that's not they got what they got before. And I said, well, from now on, that's what you get. That's what you get now. <laughs> so really, I mean, sim- simply what you do is you just excel in what you can offer. Domino's offer a great product. Uh, our product has never been great all the time. Uh, of course, the last 10 years it has been, I mean, everybody knows that our product is much better now. So even at that time, if you provided the right product, the right product within the dominant specification, delivered in under 20 minutes, under 25 minutes, you have the business. People saw something was different. In fact, I started introducing myself as a new owner. That's it. I said, my name is Mac and I'm the new owner. From now on, you're going to get this product. So again, another customer followed up in a few days later, I don't know when, and they, they said, I, I ordered a, uh, the extravaganza. 
I got extra cheese. I did not order extra cheese. And I said, no, I didn't send you extra cheese. Extravaganza comes with cheese, extra cheese. <laughs> that is really how we excelled in EPSI. Then, uh, of course, that score became one of the top in the country. I know you've already answered this question, but I really do just want to point it out again. You mentioned work ethic and you've used words like be brave, that your, your subconscious wouldn't let you do anything less than what you were doing. And the discipline that your work ethic was instilled in you from your parents and also being the first generation to have this opportunity to excel. Did you get your work ethic from anywhere else? Oh, definitely. Uh, the work ethics also comes within the domino systems that uh, I was able to be part of. Domino's uh, is my first job, and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. hoping it's going to be my last job. So the work ethics within Domino's Pizza is, is this, Jason. You probably know much about Domino's. I'm a fan. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so here's, here's the thing. 90% of the Domino's stores are owned by employees used to be delivery drivers and CSR. Because Domino's wants you to learn the basic operation. And basically, it's about handling the rush. The founder of Domino's Pizza really instilled in us about handling the rush. He always said that if you don't handle the rush, you have nothing. So in people like myself, even though I am the exception to the rule where I came from a college, uh, I had a college degree. We hire high school students, high school dropouts, anybody who wants to be in the, in the pizza market, in the pizza business, have the opportunity to learn the basic skills of store operations. There's a lot of talk about product, about service the importance of image. That's when I said, ah, so PSI is really what I'm looking for. So I, that's, what, that's how I decided to name my company EPSI, because that was what I learned for in Domino's. So that work ethics came from Domino's as well. Gotcha. Okay. And I guess I'll ask you more of a, a more modern question. In the age of COVID-19 and having to socially distance and you know make sure everyone's safe and sound, what is your biggest challenge in running the day-to-day operations? Well, uh, being an essential business, which happens to be even before COVID-19, we know that Domino's provided a unique service. Uh, in fact, Domino's Pizza is a, a unique uh, or a pioneer in delivery business to homes. It's not like today and everybody wants to deliver everything. You, know, you, you can have chicken delivered, you can have a burger delivered, you can have Starbucks delivered. Yeah. But in 1960s, Domino's was a pioneer to introduce a delivery service. So we were actually, it seems like we were ready for anything, for even COVID-19, which we think that's going to happen. So we were blessed to have such a structure. We are not a dining company. Yes, we do have a carry-out business, but our main focus is delivery. So here comes COVID-19 in the middle of March. Guess what? Our business continued growing because that is what people wanted. Instead of... And of course, they, they could not go out and eat anyway, dine out anyway. So being an essential business, we were able to provide that service to our customers. The biggest challenge during COVID-19 was getting enough delivery drivers to provide the continued service okay. in our business. Uh, so finding delivery drivers, finding people to work inside the store is the biggest challenge we have. But we are combating that uh, challenge. We are still hiring. Okay, Mac. Well, I'm going to change topics a little bit, if you don't mind. In today's America, we are now having blunt and honest conversations about issues of race and discrimination. It's important for us all to understand the experiences of our brothers and sisters in this country in order to move us all to a better place together. In light of this concern and your unique story, we would like to ask some questions related to your experiences as a successful 
black businessman. Is that okay? Oh, yes. Thank okay. You. So question, my first question, do you feel you were judged by the color of your skin or background along the way to developing your business enterprise? Uh, well, Jason, uh, you know, here, here's, here's the thing. As soon as I arrived to the States, Fargo, North Dakota, mm-hmm. was there whether I was filling out forms, uh, whether whatever's happening around me, I found out that um, I was black. I was told I was black. And I said, uh, what is that? Well, I mean, yes, I knew that my color is darker um, from Africa, but uh, the race issue hit me hard for the first time I arrived in the States. I was told I was black and I say, okay. So that's how all this started. And then, Soon after I, I finished college, and then of course uh, I became a Domino's franchisee, a successful just one store franchisee. I was also told that Matt, no, you are not black, you are from Ethiopia. So that was for me kind of uh, Jason an insult mm-hmm. uh, because the first the first one was fine. I was black, okay, but the second one was an insult. I said, Are you telling me that not have done this for being black? So yes, yes, definitely, I, I have experienced that, uh, uh, that racism. But, but again, I want to take you back about my childhood and my, social, you know, my uh, subconscious. I don't think anything will stop me from becoming who I want to become. I don't think, uh, I, also, I cannot also pretend that I have experienced being black or I know what to be black. I, I, cannot, I cannot say that. Because being you know, African-American in this country has its deep roots in, in the, the systematic racism that uh, African-Americans have experienced through the years. So I cannot pretend that I know what to be black, but I have experienced to some level. But the good news is that my subconscious is telling me that Mac, nothing can stop you, just move on. So I continued um, doing what I have to do and um, through that, I was able to prove myself that I'm, I'm able to do what I am I'm set to do. I came free to this country. I came free. African-Americans have never been free as, as the system has proven. As a result, um, I am actually unique or different from, from the norm that you know, African-Americans have experienced. But uh, yes, through, through that experience, however, I was able to uh, succeed as a business owner not that blacks have not been succeeded african-americans even uh, even now there are many of them who, who are doctors lawyers and senators and uh, politicians and social activists many successful uh, musicians there are many many successes success stories out there from african-americans but as this as a system many of them do not have that opportunity to be where they should what would you suggest to a young person of color interested in following in your footsteps and becoming an independent business person? Of course, I, I cannot expect uh, them to have their subconscious uh, be the same as mine. But since many of African-Americans have continued, I, I would say be hopeful, be part of the change. You have to continue the struggle. Uh, John Lewis uh, calls it actually uh, become a good uh, trouble. Getting in good trouble. Exactly, getting into good trouble. I mean, good trouble is good because uh, you are asking for change. Change is good for everybody. It's not just a race issue. Change is good for everyone. To me, the change that should uh, happen for Americans is a change that should, that's good for America. 
Can you imagine that a child growing up uh, with a right atmosphere, uh, with a economy, good housing, a good health care, and more? Can you imagine that child going to school to be able to finish college, be able to support himself or herself, becoming nothing other than a successful citizen? That's it. A successful citizen provides tax country. So really, these this young people and uh, all African-Americans, they have to continue that good trouble to make a difference, make change. What we are seeing right now, Jason, uh, is a change that's, uh, that's in the process. The wheel is turning, right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's slowly but surely turning. Yeah, definitely. The wheel is turning. And here, here's what happens. The wheel to turn, you've got to push many, many social activities, many politicians, African-Americans, uh, uh, even for that matter, you know, why going the struggle have, have helped that wheel to turn. Once the wheel start turning, nothing's going to stop it. Nothing can, can stop the, the wheel. And the wheel of change is actually a change that is good for everybody. So uh, I, I would say just keep moving, keep pushing. Keep the wheel turning. Once it gets a lot of momentum, you're going to start getting a lot of change happening really fast, right? Yes, Jason, I, I apply that principle uh, within my business. Uh, for the past uh, 10 years now, I have a theme. I call it uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins. There is a book uh, called Good to Great. I don't know whether you heard about it or not. And if you have a chance, uh, look for it okay. by Jim Collins. And he talks about uh, you know turning the wheel and how the wheel turns, how, how successful companies become successful, how uh, good companies become great. Once you are great, you are great. So this applies to society as well, to communities, villages. It should happen everywhere. It's science. It's science. So, so I, I talk to my managers, my supervisors about making a change, making the wheel turn. Once the wheel turns, then a new culture happens within, within the store and service will get better, product will get better, business will grow. You know, managers earn more money. Uh, uh, you know, we were able to grow our business and opening more stores and so on and so forth. Currently, uh, Jason, we have 40 stores. I'm opening my 41 store, for, 41st store in Chandler, Texas in a couple of months as a result of the wheel turning. So would you say the best way forward for, for positive change and empowerment for immigrant communities and communities of color would be to keep the wheel turning, getting that good trouble? You mentioned the social services. Is there any other advice you think you would, would, would help create positive change? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I would say start the conversation. I think it looks like some of these uh, issues are not very comfortable. Is that right? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> when when we start talking about race and, and somebody said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, are you telling me you are racist, that I'm racist? It's not really what we are talking about. Yeah. It's about the systematic, uh, the systematic racism that's, uh, that, that is uh, apparent within our society. We are responsible, not because we are being racist, but the system at causing that racism to continue unless we start the conversation. This is the simple thing what you do is the conversation, ask that black person or brown person, how do they feel? What is the roadblock for their success? All right, just listening, start conversation. And those conversations are slowly happening. Yes, we, 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 we should never let that, uh, that discussion, that conversation stop. Uh, we need to start doing our own homework. Thank God there is a lot of information. We can Google it. We can you know, dig into the, in our history, learn more. Mm -hmm. um, ask questions. The change we are looking for is not change just only for 
African Americans. I think the change is for us, for the US, and for and for the entire world, for the universe. I think that if we can just understand that we are part of the universe, we are only one and one. I think that I think we can listen to each other. We are not talking about blaming. Nobody's being blamed. We're just trying to point out we got a problem and we have to solve this problem. That's that's really the message that I have for everyone. So we're gonna change gears a little bit. Along with being a successful businessman, you have also found time to serve two terms as president of the Mutual Assistance Association for the Ethiopian Community Inc. The MAAEC is a major supporter of KNON and the DFW Ethiopian Community Radio Program. So could you tell me, how did you learn about this group? Well, uh, remember what I mentioned earlier, when I was in Dallas in 1986, the organization has already begun. You mentioned it started in 84, correct? That is correct. That is correct. I paid attention. Yes, that's right. You are a good listener. Thank you. I try. (laughs) Thank you. But I remember also I I moved to Paris, Texas in uh, 1989. So I stayed there for 20 years. 20 years later, I came back to to Dallas and and bought a house and and built a house in Rockwell. And I was very close to Dallas. So you know, as soon as uh, we moved to Dallas, uh, we joined as members of uh, the association. Uh, so, uh, you know, yes, I, I just, you know, became a member of the association and then I start, you know, going uh, up meetings. And I do remember in 2009, when we moved from Paris, Texas, Rockwall, uh, we moved our, uh, our furniture to the new house. And then uh, at that time I had sponsored uh, my son's band, the Devo Band, uh, uh-huh. that's a musician group that's uh, directed by my son, by Danny McConan. Okay. So I have sponsored uh, them to come and uh, play at the Ethiopia Day in Dallas. Okay, so, nice. So that's when everything ha- started happening that, and then of course, um, I joined the, uh, the member and then talking to me about joining the executive committee. Could you tell me what the MAAEC does and about how many uh, members do you guys have? Uh, yes, uh, basically the association, you know, you know primarily responsibility or service that it provides from its inception is really to bring Ethiopians together. Uh, as as Ethiopian families are growing, you know, we always talk about, you know, uh, we have like 20,000 people, 30,000 people in the Dallas-Fort Worth. So that's not the case. The community is really growing. So... So in its inception, and its goal was to bring uh, Ethiopians together so that our children learn our tradition, our heritage. That was the initial service uh, the, the association provided. Uh, as a result, uh, the association brought Ethiopians uh, together on the Liberty Day weekend, celebrate Ethiopia Day. So it started, you know, at first, you know, a couple of hundred people who show up and later on, I remember during my term, it reached to the point where uh, the Preno Center could not even handle the crowd. We were over 2,500, and I was I was advised by by the directors there at the Preno Center, Mac, I think uh, you need to look for a bigger space. So we're gonna need a bigger boat. Was, absolutely. So uh, I mean, children, young people, they just loved uh, coming and attending the day because there is a music festival, cultural exchange, a lot of many many programs, and we have. Uh, provided awards for, you know, uh, leadership, the, the people who are in the leadership position who are providing services. So that grew into the point where the association actually uh, started growing 
about 14 years ago when the association created another service to providing a burial and uh, funeral services, uh, you know, by coordinating the funeral services for the families, uh, you know, for their family who they have lost. So that helped actually um, grow the association. Currently, uh, membership is over 2,300. That's just a basic membership, which means uh, close to uh, 7,500 Ethiopians are part of the association. It is still growing. Okay. Uh, so that's that's what that's the association uh, is that strong, and it brings Ethiopians together. It provides you know decent similar services. What years did you serve your terms as president? I moved uh, in 2009 to uh, the Dallas area, and then in, in 2011, I was asked to run for for one position or the as a time of the executive director. Uh, so uh, from 2011 uh, to 2017, 2017, I served two terms of so almost seven years. Okay. What was your biggest challenge serving in that role? Well, you know, when, when you have the immigrant, uh, you know, community, uh, it is a given that, you know, the biggest challenge usually will be the, the diverse about uh, everything that's that's happening uh, within our community and mainly uh, back home. So you know, uh, especially prior to 2018, we know the majority of Ethiopians in Dallas community and many other towns all over the country and all over the world did did not support the the regime then. So we were, we we were of course against that government and and then you will have a few other immigrants who have the right to do so. They were actually supporting the government or at least um, believe that they, they, we could work with the government. We know that's not possible when a government is not democratic. So bringing uh, those diverse opinions together, it is a tough one. Um, uh, You know, there were several issues that uh, we brought to community's attention and we made some decisions as an executive committee and you know for example one of the executive committee's decision was about uh, uh, human rights we said human rights you know we, we support human rights in ethiopia so we, we are against the government because they are not providing you know guaranteeing human rights and you know some of the members were not very happy that we become a political organization we told them no that's not that's not politics that's just human rights question so those things you know will create a challenge which challenge is good it's not bad by no means but that would cause some delay in uh, growing uh, the organization. Regardless, however, Jason, the, actually the, the association grew faster than any time recent, the past you know, five years. Uh, right. So as a result, you know, we were able uh, to work together as a community. Now uh, we, we are in the middle of change in Ethiopia and, uh, since April of 2018. So you know things are changing a little bit. Uh, it doesn't mean everything's perfect, but uh, we are on the process of uh, turning that wheel. Okay. KNON learned about you and your incredible story from Ziggy Kagnu, host of DFW Ethiopian Community Radio Program here on KNON. Could you tell us a little bit about how you met Ziggy? Well, here's, here's the thing. Um, I mean, I don't know why I'm on podcast. Really, that was, he should be the one on podcast, okay? <laughs> he's, he's the one who, who serves the community uh, longer than me or many other uh, leaders combined, okay? He has served the Ethiopian community by running uh, the Ethiopian community radio program for over 25 years, uh, probably over 30 years now. Time is flying. So Ziggy is Ziggy. Is Ziggy. I mean, uh, Ziggy is Ziggy. Yes, I mean, he's, he's a 24-7 workaholic on the Ethiopian radio side. And I, I say this honestly. I mean, everybody will agree with me. Even those people who might not agree with him, they will agree that 
he works hard. So he, sh he should be the one on the podcast you know, to tell you more about the Ethiopian community because he knows it all. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I was actually somebody who, who was lost, but I was found in 2009 by joining the Ethiopian community. Uh, he's, he is one of the reasons why I was part of the Ethiopian community. I remember, I guess about what now, 13 years ago, 12 years, 12 years ago. We've been here about 11, 12 years now, I think, uh, 2009, 11 years. 11 years, 11, yeah. 11 years, I was, I remember he came to my house to interview me. He's the one who introduced me to the Ethiopian community and he is actually the reason for me serving uh, the Ethiopian community. So, Sigi, um, if you are listening, thank you for, for your services, for, uh, for allowing me to be part of the Ethiopian community. In fact, I, I want to give you the credit for bringing me, uh, bringing me back to the Ethiopian community to claim my uh, heritage, my culture, because I could have been lost. I made many, many friends uh, as a result. I've been part of the community for 11 years now. Um, I will support the community in any way I can. I do also recall many other leaders within the community, other than Ziggy, uh, Mr. Betru, Mr. Saifu, Dr. Aziz, uh, the current executive director, Yur Galem, the current uh, leader of our uh, the funeral services, and uh, Gusei. Uh, many other, and uh, you know, Jason. Not only I work with these leaders, but also I did work with many uh, community leaders uh, from the from uh, the Ethiopian community, from the church groups like uh, the local pastors, with Pastor Bedlou, and the local priests, cases uh, uh, and Golem, and then many other also Muslim leaders, uh, Ethiopian Muslim leaders, leader in this community. I was actually I was I'm the one who got the benefit, the most benefit for me. Uh, going back home, uh, being part of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a U.S. citizen, but I also claim to be uh, an Ethiopian person. Also, I love Ethiopia. Um, uh, I, I'm hoping everything that goes well for Ethiopia. And in the meantime, I also want to mention that I wouldn't do this for the community without the support of my wife, uh, my life partner, Tawabich. And also, I think, uh, Jason, Tawabich should have been the one on podcast, but not just me. Well, it sounds so, like we got a, a couple more parts to do here. <laughs> so she, she also supported me with, uh, with my business, and she was my business partner. She, she ran the, the first school with me. Uh, me, the opening manager, she's a, a, me, uh, uh, the closing manager, she's opening manager for the store, and she's part of the business, part of the growth. And uh, everything I do with the business uh, has to be blessed and has to be supported or, or initiated by her. So, you know, I, I would like to thank not only Ziggy, but also my wife and the Ethiopian leaders. Well, Mac, before I let you go for today, I, I need to get one answer out of you because this is a question that's been grating my mind for years. Given your vast professional experience and success in the field of culinary expertise, I have a d deeply personal question to ask you. Are you ready? Uh, personal question. Personal uh, question. I like and we and we hung up and called me. <laughs> no, no, no. It's okay. It's it, this is this needs to people need to know about this. I need okay. to know. Is that the same question that others might have? Yes, many people have this question. It's it's okay. sweeping the nation. If you go online, it's everywhere. I need to know: Does pineapple belong on pizza? <laughs> hey, listen, Jason. I was supposed to be an electrical engineer. Okay. Okay. You are asking the right person because I happen to be a pizza engineer. Okay. All right, first of all, pineapple is not for me, okay? Okay. But, but I also know about uh, the ethics within Domino's Pizza, within our business. 
the business uh, the uh, the business tells me all every time that the customer is always right okay jason yes put that pineapple okay don't get confused just give it a try if you like it order again if you don't like it order something else that is that is spoken like a true businessman <laughs> well mac thank you very much for your time today and sharing your compelling story with, with of struggle and success we wish you all the best in your continuing journey and thank you for supporting KNON throughout the years. Is there anything you'd like to leave today's listeners with? Well, I think I, I probably might have covered something earlier. Here's here the thing. The, the listeners come to you to a podcast for a reason. I don't think they are you know, turning into a podcast, this one or any other podcast. I am I'm, I'm one of them. I open a podcast and I'm, I'm, I love podcasts but also look for something very good. Your listeners are you know, listening to podcasts for a reason. Welcome to this podcast. What I ask you is this, what I, what I, I say is this, okay? Open up, yes, just open up, start listening, start communicating, start conversing, share your, your thoughts, your experiences. Open up, podcasts will change the world. The podcast people are listening to, there are many things out there you know, um, you, you can learn a lot of things. Uh, so, you know, my, my challenge to the listeners is that make this podcast work for you. You know, make a change that you want to make. You be a change that you want to make a change. So don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't, don't be afraid. If you're on social media, just put up a thought. Start the conversation. Things will happen. That's, that's the only advice that I, that I have. Well, thank you so much, Mac. It was a pleasure talking to you.